Uh, good evening, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for coming. Pirshut, Dr. Lichtenstein, Rosh Hashiva, Moshe Lichtenstein, and really uh, many, many distinguished alumni, graduates of Yeshivat Haritzion, friends of Yeshivat Haritzion, thank you all for joining here. Uh, I'd like to take a moment, and I'm going to, without a doubt, miss people who are here, and I apologize in advance if I missed you, but at the end, just now, I wrote down a bunch of names of people who are co-sponsoring tonight's program, but also are either Gush alumni or very close friends of the yeshiva who are here, and I want to thank them personally, and you'll see why in just a moment. First of all, uh, I noticed Rabbi Chaim Strachlet, Rabbi Shara Shemaim, who's, of course, a fellow classmate of mine when I was in yeshiva, Rabbi Jay Kelman, thank you as well for being here, uh, Dr. Jonathan Levy, uh, son, gets a special mazel tov uh, for just uh, finishing first and winning the Chidon uh, Hatanach for the diaspora competition. And uh, Dr. Levy's son is heading to Gush next year. Mazel tov and congratulations. Uh, I saw Rabbi Elon Mazur, who is the head of Mizrahi Canada. He may have just left. I saw Rabbi Jonathan Ziering, who, of course, is a Skan Menahel, Skan Rosh Hashiva, Skan Rosh Beit Midrash, that's the right title, at the Termitzion Yeshiva University, Beit Midrash Zichron Dov. I got that. Um, Rabbi Aaron Greenberg, who's the JLIC rabbi here for us in Toronto. Rabbi Daniel Thwaites, who's the rabbi at the Ayin Lezion Synagogue. Um, And I think I got everybody that I noticed at first glance. And the reason that I mention all of those names is because those are all people who are either alumni of the yeshiva, whose children have learned in yeshiva, and are rabbanim and leaders in the city here today in either major shuls, schools, or other institutions. And I'm sure there are others who I forgot who are here, and I apologize, and others who exist in the city who I left out. And I mention that by way of introduction because the impact that yeshiva Haaretzion has had on the city of Toronto and on communities all really throughout the world is uh, really tremendous and unbelievable. We now are at the third yard site of my Rosh Hashiva and the Rosh Hashiva of so many here, Rav Luchtenstein, and we all, of course, miss him greatly. And uh, it's the reason that we come together. Dr. Tova Luchtenstein mentioned to me that it's actually her first time ever in Toronto. So we're going to have to show her a good time. Uh, we got some nice weather in store, hopefully, tomorrow. And uh, Ramosha has been here many, many times. And the reason that they wanted to be here with us is because of the important role that Toronto plays within the world map and really the significant population and percentage of Gush graduates uh, and Migdalo's alumni, uh, both female and male, who are leaders here in the city and the number who we send to Migdalo's and to Yeshivat Haaretzion on an annual basis. And I'd also like to also thank uh, Mr. Yoel Weiss, who's standing in the back, who's the executive director of the Etzion Foundation, who is joining them and here with us uh, as well. Uh, I want to also mention and thank uh, World B'nai Akiva, in particular B'nai Akiva of Toronto, who, uh, if you've noticed, is taking a heavy role and playing a heavy uh, part in this evening's uh, program in the sense that today is their giving back day across the world. We're all B'nai Akiva institutions, both in Israel and outside of Israel, are involved in a 24-hour campaign to try to raise money for World B'nai Akiva and for the local B'nai Akiva chapters uh, in each city. And of course, we're one of the leaders, and as such, we're participating uh, in as strong a way as possible. 
By way of one final thought of introduction, and I really don't want to take that much time away from Ramosha, from Dr. Tova, because that's the reason that you're all here. Um, three years ago, when many of uh, Rabbanim, alumni, just a huge amounts of people were involved in giving Hespedim for Avarn, there was one particular line that Rabbi Michael Talbis uh, said in a Hesped that stuck with me, and I've always thought about that in the context of my memories of Rav Lechenstein. And I think, like so many of you, we all try our best to emulate him in the tiny, small possible way that we can. And Rabbi Michael Talbis, in a hesped that he gave at the time he was the Rosh Hashiva of MTA, uh, Yeshiva University's High School for Boys, and he quoted the Pasuk in Parshat Miketz, when Paro said to Avadav, Hanim Tzakazayish, Asher Ruach Elokimbo. Somewhat ironic because of the context of the Pasuk, but Rabbi Talbis said that for him, Rabbi Aaron was this Ish, Asher Ruach Elokimbo. And it was this, he was this individual who he always thought of, and he always said, there's nobody else, an Imtzak Hazeh, who we could find, who has this Ruach Elokim more than Rabbi Aaron. And we all have our own memories, we all have our own stories, we all have our own thoughts. It's not the time for a lengthy Hespid, but we come together, hopefully once a year, and as often as possible to listen, to hear stories, to read svarim, to read articles, to remember the great impact that Rav Lichtenstein had on literally thousands of Talmidim and really continues to have and uh, will continue to have for decades and decades uh, to come. And in that respect, it's a true honor to have Dr. Tova Lichtenstein and Ramosha with us this evening for this evening's program. So we thank you both. One more second. Let me just give some context to the program this evening, and then I'm going to invite uh, Dr. Lichtenstein to begin. Uh, where the topic is uh, Aliyah, but with a specific focus of the creation of the Hezder movement. And the goal really was to get a sense from both Dr. Lichtenstein and Ramosha about their early Aliyah and the creation. Obviously, Rav Lichtenstein very much joined Ramital. <laughs> Fair enough. Well said. But Dr. Lichtenstein's Aliyah, then, will say it more accurately. Okay. And the creation of the Hesder movement, how it began to build and develop, and really its early beginnings. And then Rav Moshe is going to focus on where Hesder is today and really where he sees it going. Not that anyone has a crystal ball, but those possibilities over the next decade or so. Each is going to speak for a short period of time, make a short presentation, and then really we're going to open it up to you for questions and answers around that topic. I actually, there's a rabbinic gush listserv that exists. So I sent around an email to it uh, before the weekend asking for some interesting questions. So I got back a list of some fascinating questions that other rabbis and other alumni across the globe would like to ask. So if none of you have questions, I have a whole list of questions. But we'll let you try to get to your questions first. Thank you very much, Dr. Lichtenstein. First of all, people don't get up for me. <laughs> uh, second of all, I, I thought I was coming to Toronto. It would be a strange country. It looks like the place where I was brought up, and it's full of familiar faces and good friends. And so here I thought I was going on this great adventure, and I, added, I ended up coming home. And so, But I'm very happy to be here tonight. I must say, I must say, I surprised my... Whoops. 
I must say I surprised myself when I agreed to speak about our Aliyah this evening. I'm a very private person and do not readily share my personal life or history with others. And yet, it seemed to me the right thing to do, and I agreed without hesitation. And so why am I standing here today? I really asked myself that question when I sat down to write the few words I want to say. Because I am here to share with you the story of Aliyah, of our Aliyah, my husband's and I, mine, which is in some way a chapter in the history of the religious Zionist community in Israel and the beginnings of Yeshiva Taritzion. The Yeshiva is the intellectual continuation of the classical Lithuanian Yeshiva, while at the same time it is different from it in its active involvement in protecting Am Yisrael. The story I will tell you tonight is the story of building a Torah institution in Israel that influenced the religious community not only in Israel but also in the United States, Canada, England, and Australia. We have Bogrim and all those places. The yeshiva was housed in a small group of Quonset huts in Kvaritzion when we arrived in the winter of 1969-1970, it was January, for our first visit. It was cold, rainy, foggy, and muddy. My husband went to say a shir in the Beit Medrash, and I was invited to spend the time with the house mother, Esther Bin Nun. She's the wife of Yoel Bin Nun that you might know. She was all of 22 years old, maybe she was 21, and was responsible for the administration of the housekeeping of the yeshiva and for preparing the meals. She and her husband lived in an unheated building of three rooms. Not that there was all theirs. Each room housed a different couple. The first, co- the first house belonged. The first room was Yoel and Esther. The second was Hanan Porat. I love her shalom and his wife. And the third was a couple that still lives in the kibbutz today. Each room housed a different couple. There was no indoor bathroom to service any of the couples. The bathroom was a five-minute walk away, and it was the communal bathroom of the kibbutz that serviced these staunch young people. And they came, and Esther describes this was one of the most beautiful apartments she ever had, that she loved living there. Our lunch that day when we came to visit was called in Yiddish Pupiks. I think the Goyim called them gizzards. I never knew anybody ate them but Jews. Chicken was reserved for the student who was recovering from jaundice. Rav Amital, with his characteristic humor, explained that this was a meal fit for ministers of the Israeli government. The proof, he claimed, was the fact that when Minister Moshe Shapiro, who you all know was one of the leaders of the Mizrahi movement, came for a visit, he was served exactly the same lunch. The atmosphere in the yeshiva, however, was electric. There was a sense of mission and adventure. The physical conditions were of little or no importance. My husband, Shia, that day was like none these young men had ever heard. They had never been exposed to his far-reaching intellectual grasp or his searching for conceptually, broadly-based understanding of halachit sugyot that at first 
glance seemed unrelated. They were impressed by his knowledge, but in truth, much water would have to flow in both the Jordan River and the Kinneret before he turned into their beloved and revered Rosh Hashiva. And you know how little water there are in both those places. <laughs> Whether the first yeshivat hezder was Kerem B'yavna under Rav Goldrick's leadership or was conceived of by Rav Meltzer at yeshivat Hadarom is a moot point for all except their closest ad devotees. There is little doubt, however, that the yeshivat hezder was an attempt to change the priorities of the religious Zionist youth. The prevalent model for the young religious man in Israel at that time was to complete his high school education and, as all of his secular contemporaries, to be drafted into the Eimer. Higher Torah education was divorced from army service. Even at Merkaz Harav, the flagship of higher education for the Zionist youth, army service was delayed until after the young man had spent some time in the yeshiva. There was an option to reverse the order, but the option of what we would call a joint program was not the order of the day. The leaders of the religious Zionist camp were of Polish, Russian, or Lithuanian origin, and their vision of yeshiva was the classical European one. The yeshiva was a place isolated from the world and self-contained. The notion that even when one was occupied with the study of Torah, one needed to hark into the crying baby, and I think you all know that story, as in Rav Amital's well-known story, and those who don't know, ask me later, and I'll tell it to you, was not as prevalent. But things were changing. By the time we came to Israel in 1971, Karen Biyavna was completing its second decade. Yeshivat Shalabim and Yeshivat HaKotel and Yeshivat Haritzion were the Yeshivot Hezder. Both Karen Biyavna and Shalabim had Rashi Yeshiva. Haritzion had Rav Amital, and Yeshivat HaKotel was looking for someone to head up their institution. But a Rav Amital had a dream to bring my husband to Haritzion, and Yeshivat HaKotel had a similar plan. And so that first visit that I described was getting to know both institutions. When asked many years later why he chose Haritzion, Rav Amin answered in two words, Rav Amital. And I think all of you who have studied in the yeshiva understand what he meant. These two Rashi yeshiva were so different, yet they were a wonderful team. My husband's seriousness, Rav Amital's understanding of human weakness, Rav Amital's wise, intuitive response to people, Rav Aaron's measured understanding. Something's happening to my microphone. My Rav Amital's wise, intuitive response to people, Rav Aaron's measured understanding, Rav Amital, the Shaliach Tzibur, Rav Aaron's private davening, Rav Amital's short sichot, Rav Aaron's long ones, and Rav Amital getting his hat as a sign that Sudashli shit was too long for him, and Rav Aaron patiently waiting for the singing to wind itself down, are just a few examples of the unusual partnership that flourished for four decades. Yet, let me go back in time to talk of our decision to come on Aliyah. 
Vayetze Yaakov mi Beersheva Vayele Harana. One needs to leave the former abode before one can arrive at the new one. A decision to come to Israel was the same time a decision to leave the United States in Yeshiva University. America's sterling reputation as the home of the free and the brave had by the late 60s become tarnished, at least in my eyes. I also had no problem leaving what I felt was the growing materialism of our Orthodox community. Little did I know that 40 years later, I would be filled with the same dismay when confronted by the growing materialism of the Israeli religious community. But what was difficult in leaving the United States was leaving family. Not a simple decision by any means. But the world got smaller as communications and transportation improved, and families became more global. And the feeling of leaving was mitigated as the distance became much easier to navigate. Leaving Shiva University was also not simple. My husband was a product of YU. He had earned his BA, had received Smichadir, had taught at Stern College, was a Ramid Reitz and Rosh Kolel. He headed the first Kolel from its inception, and it was he who nurtured it, developed it, mentored it in the same thorough and devoted manner that he was later to develop Yeshivat Haritzion. I was also associated with YU as the Director of Student Services at Stern College. I was responsible for the dormitory for student services, and I had a counseling service, and all that on one salary. There were many who could not understand how Rebarman had chosen to leave the flagship of the American Orthodox world for a small yeshiva housed in what was then the end of the world. A foolhardy and irresponsible decision what a without a doubt, is what they said. And indeed, how did my husband explain himself to the perplexed? At a farewell gathering given by the Rebbeim of Wayu, Rebaron was asked the assembled the following question. What would you rather be, a spectator in the grandstands or a player on the field? All of you who knew him know that he always liked using sport analogies. He was a big bookie in sports. I, he continued, would rather be a player than a spectator, as Jewish history is being forged in Eretz Israel and not in Chutzlaris. A spectator sits and watches in comfort while the player, although he takes risks, is actively engaged in playing the game and can make a contribution, however small, not only to how the game is played, but also to its outcome. Our decision to move to Israel also reflected the homes in which we were brought up, the religious education we had received, and the post-six-day war response of young religious Americans. If we had thought that the establishment of the state of Israel, that with the establishment of the state of Israel, the young state had come into a safe harbor, we realized at that when that war broke out that we were mistaken. There were challenges and miracles, hardships and tribulations, but we realized that indeed Israel was the playing field of Jewish history. And we, Rav Aaron and I, were not the only ones who joined the Israeli team. Many of our contemporaries did the same. And they became the teachers in the yeshivot, and they became the professors in the university, and they became the businessmen. 
Jewish history is forged not only in the political area, my friends, but also in the religious one, in the passing on the on of the Masorah in all its complexity and abundance to the next generation. And my husband began to teach his young students. He taught them day after day, year after year, how to analyze the sugya, the relationship between a clear understanding of the minutia and the underlying halachic concepts, and that the Beit Medrash was not Noah's Ark, isolated and protected from the world and its failings. The Beit Medrash was a makom of Torah and Musab, and that its dwellers were obligated to guard and protect that world, be it militarily or ethically. Ravarin's tolerance of moral turpitude was zero, irrespective of the nature of the moral failing, be it ben adam lechavero or ben adam lemakom, be it in the private sphere or the public one, or in our world of Torah or the general society. He never hesitated to present his students an explicit moral message based on an in-depth exposition of Torah values. And he was unexpected in a world where people are expected to take standardized positions on issues. Those around him thought that halachic Jews should have no empathy for the psychological difficulty encountered by homosexuals or unwed mothers who wish to be part of the religious world, and yet he was. A Rosh Hashiva of a Hezi Yeshiva not, need not have empathy for Arabs and should understand they contended that brute force is necessary in times of conflict. And yet he spoke out strongly against excessive use of force, the need to actively seek out peace, and that all men were created but Selim Halokim. And... Of course, they expected a rabbi who quotes Milton, William James, and Boswell to name just a few would not be very much of a Yirei Shemayim. And those around him learned that Yirat Shemayim is not a result of retreat from general culture, but that general culture can enhance one's sensitivity and experience and can enrich one's Yirat Shemayim. Ravam and Ravamital continued on their way without seeking the approbation of their colleagues. I would like to suggest that many of the moral issues of which my husband and Ravamital took note were directly related to the Israeli public arena and that the yeshiva's voice was not only heard in the world of the Beit Medrash but reverberated in other halls and places. Yeshiva Taritzion was and is a Hezder Yeshiva. Devotion to the task at hand is a value shared by the army and the Yeshiva. This, this shared value can cause tension, as each one wants the undivided attention of their young charges. In those early, early years, the very notion that a Ben Yeshiva could simultaneously live in two worlds was new. I like to think that the very complexity of the worldview presented to the young student in the yeshiva, the clear moral vision, the obligation to worry not only about one's own spiritual and religious development, but also about the state of Am Yisrael, gave the young soldier Talmidim the ability to be both good soldiers and find B'nai Torah. 
those were the early years, a time when tradition and respect for tradition were strong components of our milieu. Times have changed. The challenges of our current world are different. Yeshivot has dare have shown that serious studies can go hand in hand with a commitment to do one share in defending one's country. How this commitment can be met and in which setting is the current issue that the Yeshivot are addressing. I was witness to the first stage of the beginnings of the Yeshivot Hesder, and I am confident that the current leadership has the wisdom and understanding to continue developing responsible and caring B'nai Torah. Thank you. Good evening. I really, as was mentioned, it's not my first time here, and I really feel uh, back home. Uh, familiar faces, a familiar bit midrash. Uh, I've often taught in this bit midrash, and uh, feel very much at home. Uh, and uh, thank you for inviting us again and uh, for coming to talk. Um, self-reflection is a good thing. Uh, you know, day to day, I'm always busy preparing a shir. On the, on the airplane here, I was busy preparing Masechet Shabbat of Kufla Medhei, and. Uh, to take an a time out and to reflect upon Mi'ayin Bata Vilanata Holeich and to give a Din Vecheshbon uh, is often a good thing. It forces you to, uh, to prioritize, to focus. Uh, so thank you also for the opportunity to talk about the Hezder and its current, uh, its current situation. I'll begin... Uh, and I will indeed focus mostly upon Yeshua Tezder and less upon Aliyah... I'll begin by posing a very simple point. The period my mother spoke about, from the heroic period of the Hez there, the appreciation of Yishot Hez there in Israeli society was huge, especially after Mechabed Yom Kippurim. Mechabed Yom Kippurim was a de- devastating, uh, t- over 2,500 um, soldiers who were killed, uh, Chalalim, um, thousands of others who were wounded, sense of a threat and it was, it was, the country was broken it took many years for the country really to recover and to regain its self-confidence it was a very difficult time and within all that uh, the spirit and uh, the willingness for self-sacrifice and, uh, and self-confidence uh, of uh, the Frum community and particularly Shortez there shone it really was a beacon in a period of uh, despair and darkness, especially in the army. And um, Shortez there were, were highly appreciated. Mital, the students of Mital used to tell about his visits to the army at the time uh, were inspiring and impressive. A few years later, Shortez there were granted the Prasi Israel. Israeli society, and there was, to best of my memory, there was no criticism of that in the paper. The Shavuot were given Press Israel, and uh, some thought it was a good idea, some maybe thought to other worthy institutions. No one attacked the Yeshivot as being unworthy of a prize or unworthy of recognition. Yet, if I now fast forward to 2014, 2013, 2015, uh, it's two, three years ago, Yeshivot were under an immense attack, which tended to de- delegitimize the entire idea. Behind it, uh, I'm not talking about giving it prize. I'm talking about trying to basically dismantle by law the whole uh, law enterprise. If you ask of Makara, what happened? What changed in the course of 30, 40 years? 
To explain this, I'll take another step backwards. My father wrote an article in the early 1980s, Zotrat Hezder, translated to English as the ideology of Hezder, which at the time was the first systematic attempt to really provide a halachic, hashkafic, philosophical basis for the justification of Hezder. It was originally written in English. In tradition. I don't remember. I looked it up. Okay. I trust... and anyway, it certainly, it certainly made waves in Israel, no less than in America. It, uh, it really, uh, it was, it, it was just simply done intuitively. And also he came and established the rationale behind it. A few years, about seven years ago, we went to visit someone in New York uh, who spoke to us about the Shortes there and where they're coming from. My father commented at the time, what was clear to any, I think, observer, and he was an observer, of course, uh, that it's time to write a new article. I will, I will call it, for uh, illustration's sake, he didn't use the phrase, but I will call it, Zot Mishnata is there. And uh, the reason is very simple. Zot Rata is there justified the Hezder vis-a-vis those who tried to delegitimize the challenge, its legitimacy from the right. I mean, the religious right. But more differently, the question was, why do 17 months of army service, and then it was less even, uh, why do 17 months of army service and three and a quarter years of Talmud Torah be in the Beit Midrash the whole time? And the whole article is focusing really to fend off the right flank, to explain why it's legitimate to study Torah together with the with, uh, army service and why a person who goes to the army is not shirking his responsibility to Torah. Now, you'd have to write, my father commented at the time, you'd have to write the opposite article to explain why it's legitimate to do 17 months and not three years in the army. Was the attack now is coming not from the right side, but from the left side, if you want. And I, I, mean, I speak here not only about the secular community, but the religious Zionist community as well. There are many, many within the religious Zionist community who challenge the legitimacy that has there from, a religious, from within the religious camp itself. And uh, this requires even greater explanation. Why this great shift? What happened or... Why, if I know where we're coming from, where are we going to? Why is the, is the model at the moment being called um, into question? So now I'll explain a bit what was at the time when we went in Aliyah and what is the state of uh, religious Zion at the moment and then explain why, what is the justification, why it has to be redefined or re, uh, rearticulated. The Israeli society that we came to in 1971-72, I talked about the film community, was, uh, was much more in contact, we had much more dialogue. I'm not talking, it had more sociological contact also. But I mean also, it religiously still was in touch and dialogue it was, and it was corresponding from the sense of correspondence with the Haredi world. Well, for my high school class, an X amount went to Haredi Shivot. Uh, my Madrich in the Ezra, no, I wasn't in the Akiva, excuse me, I was in the Ezra, uh, that's where Chorev sent its uh, students to. Uh, at, the middle of te- at the middle of 10th grade, he disappeared one day. Uh, what happened? He went to Yeshiva Haredit. And, uh, and this was true not only about the high school Ramim were such, 
And this is true, though, not only about, I said, the sociology, but also that you have to justify yourself. I remember the arguments, the high school arguments were dealt so much with, will there be Talmidei Chachamim from Yeshivot Hezder or only from Yeshivot Charediot? And like, basically the challenge was, and religious society, religious society was producing a crop of very seriously engaged people with Talmud Torah. It was challenging them to do more Torah. Now, uh, since then, things have changed. And um, I hope I won't anger people too much, but I'll state the following. At the time, when I was in high school, there was a constant rallying cry, which was, let's replace the Ramim who come from uh, the Haredi Shivot with homegrown products from the Zionist Torah world. Eventually it happened, of course. The idea was that they're more in touch with the kids, they relate to them better, they understand their world better. All of it was true. And it's also true that an X amount of kids, in my period, had disconnect with the, with the Rabbeim and therefore were turned off. However, paradoxically, something else happened. And this is that a good deal of the new Ramim, and, and what's more, this, this is a reflection of much more broader trends, they grew up in a religious world of Rav Kook. In Rav Kook's world, umiyut, your nationality, is, uh, a, is, is a basic religious value. My father, uh, my mother mentioned both figures before, so I will tell the story. My father was once, uh, had a, got a ride together in the same cab with Hanan Porat Zal. Uh, and um, Hanan sprung, uh, sprung up, he, asked, he showed him a quote, and uh, he asked my father what he thought about it. The quote was, Hamadina Hu'a I tell you, the state is the ultimate happiness or good. Um, it's, it's, a long, it's part of a long, longer passage. It's a very famous passage in a wrote. Uh, and uh, this, is the, this is the concluding sentence, if I remember. Uh, the, the passage itself is a bit more, uh, is not as uh, extreme as the final sentence. But uh, my father was very taken aback, and he said, I strongly disagree with this. I mean, like, uh, how can you say something like that? And then Hanan says to him, well, that's Rav Cook." Uh, I don't think my father was, uh, it did change his mind in Iota. But um, in a world like that, you know, it's, when you can go to the army, not because you are shunning your Torah duty, because you go if you're religiously motivated. You're, and, and the rise of the Mechinot was not only to help kids have trouble learning. Far from that. The better Mechinot, those were not catering as a safety net. Those, they really believed that they were providing a religious opportunity and that if a person would go to the army and excel in the army and devote his life to military service, he was realizing a very basic religious goal. And uh, in such a, and since of of Cook and Gusha Munim, and uh, this was to a large degree the controlling or the up and coming Ashkafa, uh, the ideology. So it indeed caused a transformation. A kid now was told, Hitiashivut, settling the land, and this is the heroic stage of Gusha Munim, of course, uh, and military service, and Tanakh. Um, 
are equivalent to Talmud Torah. My father used to have an ongoing argument with, with Rav Yol Ben-Nun, whether you should study Tanakh, you should focus upon Nevim Rishonim, as Rav Yol thought, or Nevim Achronim, as my father thought. Of course, Nevim Achronim is the much less the national element, and Nevim Rishonim is much more the... Nevim Rishonim is the political national element, and Nevim Achronim is the much more the moral humanistic uh, element of it, and um, this, this, is all, this is all part of a trend. Now, um, to go with this, uh, I think you, you, have to, uh, you have to add a second point. And, and, and this is the really crux of the issue. The Hezder movement, or the Hezder ideology, and my father writes this in the, in the article briefly, because he's, as I said before, he's aiming to a different crowd and a different audience, is based upon a dialectical uh, perspective. Essentially, Hezder says there are two values. You have to be do both. You have to basically serve two ideals. One is that of Torah. The other is that of military service. However, you justify military service and for lack of time, I'll leave that aside. Assume that military service is a value. You have to, uh, and Torah, of course, is a value. You have to combine now. Now, you have two options when you, have two va- when, when you recognize two values. You have two options now. One option is to say, I'll take one value and do that alone, and somebody else will do the other value. I'll do one, and, and Reuven will do one, and Shimon will do two, uh, and so on and so forth. Or you could say each person just tries to do both. Now, uh, essentially, religious Zionism divides along these lines. Merkaz Harav, or Haramor, I should say now, and it's um, the group of yeshivot and mechinot associated with it, basically take a monistic view. I'm talking now educationally. They come and say, military service is a value, Talmud Torah is a value. So some will go here, some will go there. Someone said to me, the goal is either be 20 years in yeshiva and become a yeshiva, or be 20 years in the army and become a brigadier general. Either or. But uh, you don't tell the person to try to accomplish both. You say, choose either or. Uh, has the, uh, or the, the other alternative is to adopt a dialectical approach. Do both. Do Torah and Mada. Do Torah ve'avoda and so on and so forth. The Hezder model is squarely based upon a dialectical approach. You do both. And um, therefore, um, when you now have these two values, so you have essentially secular society, oh, excuse me, religious Zionist society is offering the two alternatives, basically offering you, you can, I said before, you can follow the other approach, the Merkaz Arab approach, in which on the one level, national service, settlements, military service is of deep religious value. And secondly, the approach is a monistic approach, either or. The Hezder chose a dialectical approach. Now, once you choose a dialectical approach, so, and this is a point that the Rav Solvechik often emphasizes, you can't, you can't fully accomplish whatever you want. I'll use a metaphor that anyone who I taught has heard this uh, hundreds of times probably. Um, you, can, you can have in front of you a, a hot cup of tea and a, a, a glass of Coke with ice. 
Now, optimally, you really want to enjoy Olam Hazeh, you want to really partake, you know, you're afraid that like the Mishnah Sharim quotes, that a person will have to give and provide an account in heavens for every pleasure he missed in this world. Um, so you want to enjoy the cup of tea and the cup of Coke. The problem is, now, when you drink something hot and then something cold, as we all know from uh, fourth grade uh, science, uh, each one will affect the other. You won't, won't, enjoy, you won't enjoy the ice cool Coke if you've taken after you sip some hot tea, and vice versa. So now you can say, I'll take only one. I don't want my tea to be not 100%. So I would rather drink the hot cup of tea and nothing else. I'd rather drink the Coke and leave the tea aside. That's a monistic approach. A dialectic approach is I'll drink both. But the problem is it indeed won't be 100%. You won't have full enjoyment. But you come inside, rather 80% of two values than 100% of one value. Psychologically, it's more difficult. But you say 160, 160 out of 200 is less percentage-wise, but it's more in absolute terms. So you say, I'd rather have 160 rather than 100. And this is the Hezder moment. Uh, this is the ideology of Hezder. And that's why it's unpopular. It's unpopular among the film community because there's an alternative which gives you 100%. Now, I should add that, of course, the alternative also appeals to youthful vigor and energy. Uh, paradoxically, and I know this sounds a bit strange, it's easier to be in the army, despite all the hardships, and I've, uh, I've been through the army as well, and I know exactly where to sleep in a muddy, uh, in a muddy tent which is leaking... Um, Nevertheless, it is easier than to devote a life to a baby drash. Baby drash requires uh, different qualities. Uh, it's not easy to be, you know, a contemplative life is often more difficult than a life of action, even if the action has some hardships, at least in the, in the broader sense. You take youthful vigor and energy and you offer it with a very gung-ho uh, opportunity. So it, this, uh, this appeals. And therefore, has there is now not um, has this perceived as uh, an opportunity which is uh, not always uh, first choice. Uh, now, um, I'll add two other points uh, and then talk about briefly the, the challenges at the moment. Uh, there's a second issue which is, um, in short, is there, the moment I mean, so now, basically, they're in a different environment. It's no longer trying to justify something Haredim. It's to justify the compromise, to justify doing a partial track. And the justification, of course, is, is a dialectical one. We have the same challenge vis-a-vis the secular community. Secular community is also uh, calling to question the legitimacy that has their movement, and um, at the moment, things are quiet. Three years ago, they were very, very problematic. And I have no idea, nobody has any idea, what the result, when there will be Israeli elections, what the results will be, who will be the candidates. Uh, one thing is clear, that if certain parties will win the election, the Hezder and the Yeshivot will be in big trouble again. And um, if you ask of why, so I'll, I'll, I'll mention a few quick uh, brief points. One is, and I think it's the most basic, though it's never talked about, the second community's connection to Torah and to the past is weaker than it was. The second community is, when we tell you to talk, that some people want a Shabbos Goy, some people used to say want a Shabbos Yid. 
<coughs> Meaning, they, want, they, they think it's important there should be Talmud Torah. They think it's important there should be Yiddish guide in the world. Someone should be from, just not them. But they really want, in the, Shimon Peres, for instance, you talk about it, his grandfather was a Rav, and it was important for him. And he came to Yeshiva a few times, and he emphasized, and it was quite sincere, the, fa- the importance for him of having yeshivot and having Torah in Am Yisrael. And deep down, when Ben-Gurion met the Chazonish, he also had that intuition. Nowadays, it's less so. There are large segments of the secular community who indeed don't feel that grandfather didn't print filler, he didn't speak Yiddish, they didn't come from, uh, they grew up in a different, uh, in a different model, the, the whole paradigm is different, and they, don't, they really don't appreciate what the Shabbat are doing. If you don't appreciate what Shabbat is doing, there's no reason to let people get to, give, to provide an exemption. You only provide the exemption if you believe in the dialectic. And the Chilonim no longer, uh, much less believe in the paradigm of Torah. Secondly, when you talk about um, dividing the burden, what they call Chalukat HaNetel, what is the burden? Forty years ago, unfortunately, the burden was sacrifice of life and limb. It was literally going to battle with all the dangers and the horrible prices that battle exacts. and the Shorters there paid their price. The Shorters there, there are many, many, many casualties. The uh, Shorters there had them. And, and um, as such, no one doubted the contribution or their being part of, shouldering their part of the burden. Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem. We should thank Hashem for every day and every minute. It's been 40 years since it was an all-out war. And really, uh, and the last, Baruch Hashem, everything is now is much more local. The, the army is much, much less engaged in all-out war like Muhammad Kippurim. And therefore, much more attention is to how much time do you know. It's, the sacrifice now is unperceived as time and not as blood. And unfortunately, it's not 100% true, of course. There still are. But uh, time takes a... Uh, takes much greater, we talk about, the, everything is computed now in terms of how many months do you serve, not uh, how much, uh, Ben-Gurion's idea that you look at, you look at how many law lane kvarim you have is no longer the, the currency, and Baruch Hashem it isn't, but it's put you at an obvious disadvantage. Um, number three, Israeli society is much more, uh, as was mentioned, more materialistic, more self-centered, in the past, a Chiloni serving the army didn't look to his right and his left how many others were serving. He felt privileged to serve. Now, in, as we all know, the big, the gravest sin in Israel is Liot Friar. To be a, to feel that someone is, you know, someone's taking advantage, to be taken advantage of is probably the cardinal uh, sin. Uh, and uh, now people count, if, we, if they do this much, we do that much. Uh, and uh, therefore, it's has this role, and I don't, I don't see, I don't see much that we can influence the general community. I, I mean, I'm not saying there's nothing, but uh, at the end of the day, a good deal of the dynamic in the secular community is inherent to the secular community, and the front person, by definition, really cannot change the dynamic. There has to be changed uh, from within. Now to uh, conclude with the accomplishments and and the really challenges. Number one, as we said before. From nothing. No, it's only Shvat HaRetzion. When, when my, my father came out of Aliyah, there were five Shvatas there. There are over 80 now. Not all are equal. Not all have the same numbers. But nevertheless, you're talking about 
I, I don't know, tenfold, twentyfold, the amount of people going, uh, the yeshiva, our yeshiva was designed in terms of dormitory space. You know, the people playing the yeshiva, they play but for two to 250 per places. Now it's a dream. Like if, if their wildest dreams would come true, they thought they have 250 beds they would need to fill. The Buch Hashem, uh, we are way beyond that. And as I mentioned, of course, in a moment, there's also the whole world of girls' education. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. Um, but, and if you talk about the shortages there in general, they've expanded tremendously. Expansion has caused also problems. Expansion has mean you've diluted the product. Inevitably, it's only, idea, it's, it's only ideal. It's also people looking for easier service. Um, experience also creates something else. The, role, the, the classic role of the yeshiva, at least the modern yeshiva, the 19th century yeshiva that we are and all of these short are modeled upon, is basically you, you're at the service of Torah. Rabchaim Velozhin's idea was Torah lishma. You serve Torah. So you take a yeshiva, you locate it in a small, out of the way place. My mother and I visited Velozhin. 20 years ago, they were still putting in the running water. And we still saw them using wells. And uh, they were a bit embarrassed when we asked me to take pictures, but they were still, still using wells. <laughs> it was, it was, uh, now, and we saw the goyim of Alojin, and you think of the intellectual firepower that the Jews had over there, you realize what an anomaly it was. The idea was, we'll take the best and the brightest out of the city centers and put them in these play these lochs, these, these places which were off the map, literally. No train, nothing. You had to get there by a horse and buggy in the, in, in the mud. Um, and what's the idea? The idea is like a, a university town. It's like Princeton or uh, Cambridge. You take a small city, you put the, you, 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 you concentrate all your intellectual firepower in one place. This is, the, this is a totally reverse of the idea that you put there were Tamil Chachamim in the main communities, the Hudos in Prague and so on. Yeshua is there, originally began, same model. Gushin was a small place. It was chosen for various reasons, but the idea was to collect the best and the brightest and put them in the yeshiva. And Kerbiyavan, same thing. Yavne is no bigger than uh, Etzion, uh, And Shalabim is, you know, there are more cows than people, maybe. Uh, at any rate, um, now people do the opposite. They establish yeshiva to serve communities. It's good for the community. Now, of course, what I think like you know, what you really need for that is a, is a community kollel. A community kollel is the best, is the optimal model to serve the community. But, as you also know, in the, in, in the yeshiva, they pay you tuition. In a kollel, you give them a stipend. So, the economic model is take a yeshiva, not a kollel. So now you have your small yeshiva. Small yeshiva in many, many, in many, many cities, um, it's good for the cities, maybe, but it, it creates problems with the, with the yeshiva model. At any rate, the expansion of Shivot has been a tremendous accomplishment. But with expansions, there before come, come challenges to make sure the product is up to date, that it's intense, that you, you don't dilute the product. The second one, and I will just make a statement, uh, I'll, answer, I'll be glad to answer questions later on. I think the Shivot are also accomplishing changes in their halimut. I really believe that certain, even though we are following the classical brisker derech, I think it's not the classical, the classical brisker derech anymore. I really think that it's evolving, and um, certain, uh, I think, I think certain changes. Uh, and I think you can identify now 
a piece of shtikul Torah written by uh, someone in, in a college that is there, as opposed to um, as opposed to Haredi Yeshiva, I think uh, that it's not it's not one yeshiva. I think it's a more broad movement. Just to make, just to point to one example, integration of Tanakh into Lamdus. Uh, I mean Tanakh into Lamdus. Not only say Tanakh. As Tanakh, I mean, the integration of London and Tanakh into a whole. This is one example, um, and of course, the third area is women's learning, uh, which uh, is part of the same willingness to open up to modernity. It is, it is not a coincidence that Yeshivot has there established women's Torah learning uh, in Eretz Israel. It goes together with your willingness to open up to society, your willingness to take old models and pour new wine into them, or in this case, almost to create a new model, but to take, uh, take the shell and, and, and recreate it. Uh, it's a huge, uh, it's a huge uh, accomplishment. If I look at Migdal Oz, I, I, I go there once a week as a very happy parent, uh, and my daughter's a Chavruta with uh, Tara Kelman. Uh, and um, I go there, I rub my eyes. I, I teach there once a week. I, I really rub my eyes. Nevertheless, I think there's a lot to be done yet. I think the world of Torah, Torah learning for women is at the early stages of developing. I wouldn't say it's like a button, it's, it's beyond that. But nevertheless, there's still, a lot of ups, there's still a lot of upside which has to be accomplished yet. Uh, you know, I think a huge amount has been accomplished, but there's a lot which remains to be done. I think it's one of our challenges to make sure that we do it right, that we don't... Um, that we don't, uh, you know, go. The, women's Torah learning can go off in many different directions, and uh, the way I see it, I would like a situation in which you, you don't talk about women's Torah learning. You talk about women learning Torah. You know, my, my wife's a biologist. There's no such thing as women biology, female biology. I mean, females doing biology, right? Uh, you don't. Um, no, you're not, I've never seen a book, collection of, uh, of articles only authored by female biologists. You know, they publish in, uh, in all the journals that the men publish and vice versa. And uh, the same is true, I think, about law and, 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 and literature and the like. Uh, I want to reach a situation in which there is, there is no such thing as a Torah journal only for women. The, the women and the men publish together and, then they, and, and they learn together. Now... This is because I think Talmud Torah is a legal system and not a, not a liter- literature or self-expression. But I very much think that uh, Talmud Torah for women, if it will be successful and to accomplish more, will indeed have to follow that path, to follow the path of Talmud Torah as it is and not to become self-expression, not to become a literature, to express the female soul, but rather to be rigorous, uh, a rigorous legal system with rules and the like. You know, it's, the moment, uh, the moment I won't be able to identify who wrote what, uh, that means we'll have gone to the, to the next step. And I, I really believe it, it's doable and will be done. But, uh, okay, these are some of the challenges. And uh, I think we, can, we should continue to go Michael Lechayil. And um, the vision that my friend Rami Tahar, Rami Tal used to say always, that, um, you see, that when he came to Gush Etzion, he saw Anan Kashub Roshahar. He saw a cloud in the heavens. And if we continue to see the cloud, and you know, I continue to go into Baby Drash every day and say ourselves, it's Sulam Mutsav Arts of Roshom Agia Shamaima, and that's what the Hezder is all about. So Zat Hashem will continue to develop and continue to prosper.
Okay, uh, who would like to start us off? First question for either Dr. Lichtenstein or Ramosha. Uh, please, Dr. Seif. Dr. Lichtenstein, when you spoke about the aliyah that you made and your feelings and, and uh, Lichtenstein, throughout the past 20, 30 years, everybody's always spoken about your father, Zetzal's uh, feeling toward aliyah. Can you discuss the contrast between Rav Lichtenstein's, or if there was a contrast between your father, Rav Shalom Zetzal, and your It's not husband? clear to me. You want to know the contact of what? The, the conversation between your husband and your father. About Zetzal, what? Making Aliyah. About making Aliyah. Okay. I think my father was a father like every other father. <laughs> I don't think, you know, he was an Adam Godel and he was a, a Godel Torah and he was an he, he he my mother had died in nineteen sixty seven and I think he was not overly excited that his children were leaving him. It had nothing to do with ideology. It had to do with people don't like their children leaving them. Uh I, I think that he was exceedingly uh, involved in in Israel. The man used to read the Israeli newspaper every day because he was the honorary president of the Mizrahi, so they would send him the Hatzofer. The Hatzofer needed subscribers, so they got one. And he would read that newspaper from cover to cover. In our house, the people of the Mizrahi would call all the time to ask him what he thinks about this and what he thinks about that and what he thinks about that. And so I think he himself was conflicted over his loyal Jewish Israel and his children leaving. But I can tell you, when we sent our children back to study with him, he was exceedingly proud of them. And one day, there was, there was some kind of a, um, a meeting. I was not there. I was at home. Each one of my boys, as they, uh, my older boys, my youngest son is, is, is upset that he was born uh, he's much younger than the rest of them, and he, by the time he was ready to go, my father was sick already. And so, but the older boys went and they spent time with him, and then they came back. And there was one day, my father tells me that there was this um, uh, uh, assembly, and they were discussing uh, who's going to defend Sinai. And a young man got up and said, "I will." And it was this young man. My father was pleased as punch by that. And so that's my answer to you. Do you want your kids to go go on Aliyah? Most Zionists don't. (laughs) I said to somebody, I said to somebody, I said to somebody, the definition of a Zionist is someone that goes to Mizrahi organization meetings, celebrates Yom Ha'atzma'ud, has a flag, an Israeli flag in his show, and he lives in the United States. And so they are not, uh, you know, uh, I think no Zionist really wants his kids. You, yeah? What? This is your first time here. I don't want to. But yeah, Toronto yeah, I'm going to say that. Yeah. What? Toronto, they're proud of people. Uh, oh, they're proud of people. I'll just add the things I heard from my father at the time. My father was. was we went to put more philosophy. The Rav also had problems with the, with the Haredi world in the past, and he had some of his Eastern European, uh, I think. Um, Experiences. Uh, there's a lot of pressure put on the Rav in Eastern Europe to lead, not to veer to the, not to come unorthodox. They tried to prevent him from going to college. 
And the Rebbe envisioned Yerushalayim as being somewhat of Warsaw. And I remember when I was in 1979 in Boston, he asked me one day, have you traffic lights in Yerushalayim? Uh, it's like this image of a shtetl almost. Well, uh, well, he was here in 1935. You all know that story. He came in 1935, and I always... Uh, you know, I had this argument with Learhouse that they had this piece. What would have happened if Rebaron had stayed? And I, I said what I said. But I always think to myself, and I don't know the answer, what would have happened if my father had indeed become the Rabbi Rashi of Tel Aviv and he would have come after Harav Cook and there would have been like a head-on, a head-on meeting between what he, he and Rav Cook, the meeting of of the religious Zionism with Rav Cook had to wait till my with Rav Soloveitchik had to wait till my husband came, and that took many many years, many 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 years of being you know the out man, but I, I think that. He had a vision. I think. I think the Rav Moshe is right. He had a vision of of Yerushalayim, and I don't think he was completely wrong. If you remember the stories about Sharet Tzedek and what went on as being Warsaw of 1920s, and Warsaw in 1920s was for the Soloveitchik family not a very uh, pleasant experience. My grandfather, Rav Moshe Soloveitchik, uh, was. I don't know Hounded. what you would call it. I don't know what Hounded. you would call it. He, he was in Tachkamoini, which was the Mizrahi school in Warsaw. And on the one hand, the Haredim were angry at him that he was in this Mizrahi school. On the other hand, they wanted him to give smicha to everybody that was registered there. And he said to them, you can only give smicha to people that are deserving. And he was willing to give smicha to three people. One was uh, one was Vahaftik, Zarech Vahaftik, who later became meh, and, I, and then the other was Goldschmidt. And I, don't, I knew who the third one was, but I forget. But he truly picked out fine people of 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 of, of Yirat Shemayim in value, and there was a tremendous fight going on in in uh, in in Warsaw. And uh, I think my son is not wrong. He thought Yerushalayim was more so. But I think what he didn't know was that the, there was such a gap between the religious Zionist world and, uh, and the Haredi world. They don't fight. They don't fight. Everybody lives in his own world. In the United States, they look around, they look over their back, or they used to, to see what was going on. And I think, who was it that told the story, we don't fight anymore? Who told that story? Rav Shach is a cousin of the Amitals. He's a cousin of the Mrs. Amital is a Melzer. She's Rav Shloyme Zalman's Zalman's granddaughter. Rav Shach is a cousin. And and he originally taught Rav Shach in Yeshivat Hadarom, which they say was the first Yeshivat Hezder. And one day they met, and I think, who said it to whom? Rav Shach said it to Rav Amitel, the trouble is we're so far apart we don't even fight. And families fight. You know, all families fight. Good families make up. Other families don't make up. But, but, but when you stop fighting, you're not a family. So I think that's part of it. I think my father had no notion 
that what was going on in Warsaw was a down, down battle. And well, they live in Meishar and we live here. I, I just add that he, he, was, he was really afraid that his grandchildren become close-minded. The paradox is, is that those who went to Aliyah, I think, uh, ended up no less uh, open-minded than those who stayed, who, who raised in the States. If I'll, 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 leave, I'll leave it at that. Uh, but, and, and, and I think, and, and I'll be, part of the reason I think was, because not only was, of course, my father and the education he and my mother gave, but it was also, we went to Yeshiva High School, which had intense Gemara. And because I had intense Gemara, so you were in a modern Orthodox institution, which was able to provide you with Gemara, you felt it was no less, was not second best. You know, I went to a high school, which gave you the sense that you were just as good as the Haredi counterpart down the street. And, but you have, you know, if you stay in the States, and you go to institutions who... You can't, anyone, you know, institutions don't provide such intensity. So then uh, you, you, the conclusion is, well, if I want to be intensive, good mind, I, go, I, I cross the street to the Haredim. And uh, I, you know, that's why, at the end of the day, the rubs of more open-minded grandchildren are the Israeli ones. Thank you very much. Just come to the mic. Those of you asking questions, we invite you up to the mic. Uh, in uh, the, the world as a whole, not just in the world of the yeshiva, there's a, uh, an abandonment of the liberal, liberal arts in the sense that there's greater attention to science and to business and less than to, to reading, writing, and thinking. And uh, there was a, a book a couple of years ago by Nicholas Carr called The Shallows in which uh, he argues that no one reads deeply. There's no eon anymore. And uh, I wonder, if, is this affecting the world of Yeshiva Hartzion? Is it affecting our world also where intense Gemara is not is is, is not um, the, the facility for it when kids are on phones and everyone is constantly being um, harassed by the latest ding. There's no time. There's no facility for really deep thinking. At least from my experience in the yeshiva, it's not like that. I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't think the issues being dealt with now are any less deep than those in the past. They may be different, but I don't see same dilemmas. I, when, you know, the one, what's so wonderful about spending two years, one, two, three, four years uh, between high school and college is you can think about the big questions of life. You have time to think about the big questions before you begin chasing uh, career and, and, and exams and then. And, and, and taking care and, and picking up your kid from the gun that you, uh, and um, I don't see any any great difference. Uh, I also I, I tell you the, the, the Gemara we're teaching, I don't think it's any less deep than what was taught 30, 40 years ago. I, I don't see it at all. Well, I see the, the problem I see in technology. And by the way, I should mention I'm married to a scientist, so uh, you know, I, I can't say that science is less shallow than literature. Uh, it's, it's more shallow than literature. But um, why is the problem I see with technology is not so much that when they're studying, they're studying in depth. I, I see the problem with relationships, that it causes, uh, you know, if people are constantly looking, you know, if you see people sitting at a table, instead of looking at each other, they're looking down. Uh, and if people are constantly interrupting, you know, they, they, they come to a family meal, and they look at the phone instead of the child, I see the problem with relationships. That, that I think, is a, is a serious challenge. But... I don't think I think technology is an opportunity, and um, I think look at the Barilan. You know, you uh, you it's a huge opportunity, and, uh, and if, if you properly employ, you can reach much greater depth. You can uh, I scan information, you know, uh, on the on the computer. Um, 
in, in, in regarding Shas, which once upon a time you had to be the rugged of it to know. And now, you know, any person with a keyboard and, uh, you know, and then a discount key, he can go through the entire Shas in, in, in half a minute. So, it's a huge opportunity. I don't see it making much, uh, I don't know, at least from my, from my perspective, it's not, it's not uh, an issue. I'd like to say a word about that. I think it depends what technology is competing with. I, after I retired, I, just, I started to go to Michlela Herzog and Midal O's, they're in the same building. Every Sunday morning, I go to study there. And so you come to Migdal O's, and outside the base medrash is this exceedingly beautiful decorative hanging, which has pockets for cell phones. And those young women come to the base medrash and put their cell phones down into the base medrash. I think... I think you're right what you say about the cell phones and the sun. But I think, the, one, there's a self-selection process of who is coming for higher religious education. And I think if what you're offering them is of more value than what they're getting out of the phone, as in everything in life, you make your choices. But I find it amazing to come and see this. Maybe I'll take a picture and send it to you of this whole big thing. It's colorful, it's beautiful, very nice, and all of them have the cell phones. And I think that um, what I see in the yeshiva, because I'm not part of the yeshiva, I see there are many things in the yeshiva that have changed in the past years. I really do. Uh, but I think the hardcore of learning not only hasn't changed, but they never had a Kolel before. They never had this before. They never had. that. There are certain things that are the, how would I say, the wrapping in which you put it. You know, in the yeshiva, I don't know when you people, when some of the people here went to yeshiva. In 1980, no one was going to make a Lagba Omer. Medura for boys who were studying in yeshiva. What are they crazy? What are they children? Well, now they do. They had a what was it called? That poetry contest. What was it called? Poetry slam. There's a poetry thing where you have to get up and say poetry. And one of the ramim said poetry, and I was very, very proud. I have a grandson there, and he made a wonderful poem. Now, no one in the years twenty, thirty years ago would think that it's passionate. For yeshiva bocha, he's not interested in that, and so I think the challenge of the modern world that I see with yeshiva is not the technology as much as the kids have want a more rounded experience, and it's very hard to know what you could give them and what you can't. How do you remain connected to the Masora, and how are you part of the modern world? And, and I think that's part of what's happening. And with some, they some of them, they don't succeed. <laughs> you indicated that the Hesder learning may be slightly inferior because they mix the coffee with the tea, or the, the cold drink yeah. with the tea. It seems to me that the Rav and Rabarn both got their PhDs. They mixed the cold drink with the tea, and I don't think they came out any less in greatness than any of the Haredi Rashivas. I think, in fact, they are far greater because they had a secular education. And we could go to the Haredi world, Rav Palm, Rav Zelik Epstein, the generation after the uh, Gedolim that came from Europe, did get PhDs. I can name a number of others, and they're no less great 
than the ones who didn't, and I would suggest they might even be greater than the ones who don't have a secular education, because you need broad knowledge today, especially to be a POSIC. I think you need science, and you have to be articulate, and that's sorely lacking a lot of times in, what, in, in people who are recognized as Gadolim. And if I could ask one question unrelated to uh, Hesder, may I? Yeah, I read Rav Sabato's uh, book with uh, the questions with the conversation. your conversations, which was a wonderful book, and I loved all of Rubarin's answers except for one. And that was when he was asked about modern scholarship by professors on Maimonides, and he sort of dismissed it and said, until the professors came along for 200 years or 500 years, we didn't know what Maimonides was saying, and it sort of reminded me to ask, until Rab Chaim came along, we didn't learn, know how to learn the Rambam, and it was un- or atypical of Rabarn, who usually had nuanced answers and saw about ten different approaches to each question, and here he just dismissed it. Did he not find any value in what the secular professors, and a lot of them weren't secular, but uh, uh, they were orthodox professors, but from a scholarship standpoint at university, in the way they dealt with the Rambam? I'll start with the first one. I, agree. I, I basically agree with you. I think that often when you expose the two different elements, you fuse the two, and, the, and why would they like to quote you, Shalmi, that says that the Torah is enriched because they're Hasidim, meaning you have less time, but you expose to much greater life experience. I agree 100%. I think uh, life experience, whether it's Service in the army or uh, literature or both, uh, indeed enriches, and uh, there are there are advantages. I, I think, though, however, um, the fact that you get certain events doesn't negate the fact that there are the prices, uh, and uh, there are certain prices which uh, which are paid through a dialectical approach. There are there are certain advantages and benefits, and I wholly agree with the assessment that. Altogether, the benefits outweigh, outweigh, the, outweigh the deficiencies, and that's why I'm, I'm both interested there, and that's why I subscribe to, uh, to, such, a, to such a worldview. I agree 100%. Uh, nevertheless, uh, there, is, uh, there are certain prices which, uh, which exist still. Uh, I, I would also add, and you know, since we talk about the, my father and the Rav, I'll just say, in the Rav's world, the tension is much greater. And I think the Rav really feels you pay greater prices. My father is much more harmonious. In his world, it's, there's much greater harmony except their practical prices. I, I did, you know, I, the first year I did Miluim, so I was studying the Yeshiva's Kola at the time, so I was studying Ksuvas in the morning and Hilchos Nida in, in the evening. So I got I got call from Iluim, Ksuvas Daf Yutet Chav Chav Aleph, which is the heart of Ksuvas, so there's no other way to describe it. Uh, and Simon Kuf Peitet, which is, all, which is, is the most difficult and complicated Simon in Hilchasnida. It took a long time to make it up. So, there, there are, but on, on the balance, I, I agree 100%. Um, regarding, listen, I, I don't remember the exact passage in the book, so I can, I can take the easy way out and say I don't remember. Um, I don't think we have the time not to, to embark a long discussion on my father's attitude to, uh, to scholarship in general. Uh, in general, he did not take that attitude, so... No, I mean, he went to discuss his attitude towards the Jewish studies. With, uh, I think we have, to, we have to make a separate so, evening for that. Uh, I, I, I suspect, though, that, you know, he, at times he, he, he was opposed to a condescending attitude at times from academia towards the yeshivot. 
he was bothered not so much by the by the results. I think more by uh, more by uh, the attitude. Was, uh, do you, do you, are you seeing judgment upon the Rambam? Are you see yourself as you know identifying with him? But uh, we need a different evening for that. I think. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, I was late. One last question. Okay, fine. You answered it very well. Fine. I don't think. So I'd like to say I have two daughters who were kind of the dichotomy you were talking about. One learned at Miguel Oz. The other is currently in officer training in a combat unit in the army as a religious girl. Um, but my question is more... Yeah, if you want me to hear, you have to talk to Sorry. Me. My question more is that I believe it was in the mid-'80s. Um, Kibbutz Atati came up with the Shiluv program. Was there any kind of corroboration between Yeshivat Hazder and Shiluv? Because Shiluv, I believe, was three years army combined with two years Yeshiva. It was two and a half, as, if I remember. But it was... It was more on balance with what the regular army service was as opposed to what the yeshivat has there was. Like, was there any talk between the two programs of a kind of combining, uh, was or not, was there was it purposely kept very separate? No, there was not much. Uh, Ramita went to the opening ceremony of, uh, if I remember, Yeshivat Ein Surim, which uh, no longer uh, exists. Uh, it was uh, institutionally the goals were different. The kibbutz Latip. That is, when you talk about combining two values, the question also of the, of the balance between the two. Kibbutz Dati had a very different balance between the two. So there wasn't, you know, I, I don't think, there, there was no opposition, uh, but there wasn't, there, wasn't, there wasn't any real cooperation. They existed side by side. Uh, I, I didn't see much uh, cooperation. I, I will say the following, though. My, my father used to talk about Mechino. He would say... The question is not only the balance. The question, so my, my, a yeshiva, you really say, yeshiva means permanency, right? In the Hebrew language, lashevet means to be permanent. A yeshiva assumes that your base, your base is the yeshiva, and you do the army because you feel it's, it's also necessary. But, you know, in the phrase of the Mishnah, keva. The yeshiva is the basic, uh, is, is your base. A mechina means uh, it's a preparatory institution. I will mechin you for the army. You know, the army is your focus, and the mechina will give you good preparation. Uh, and uh, my father really saw this as a whole change because the Mechina really prioritizes the focus in, in the army for the reasons I described before. And uh, I, I really think that they are very committed and uh, idealistic people who are following Griff Cook's vision. But it's just a different vision. And the yeshiva is, uh, sees the yeshiva as its... Uh, as its focus, uh, and, if, and I think the, the kibbutz of the also was um, in that regard. Its emphasis was certainly different than um, the nishiva. That's why they really were separate. Uh, they remain separate entities. There's, uh, there's. I mean, what's more, you know, they get along well. But my, my brother taught in the yeshiva the kibbutz of the for uh, quite a few years. Uh, but uh, beyond that, there wasn't much uh, institutional cooperation. Uh. I'd, like to, I'd like to add that one of the, I think, the big changes is in, in, in the religious community is 20 years ago, a religious girl would never have thought to go to the army. And she was going to go to Shebutlumi. And uh, my daughter, not Essie, my other daughter said to me, because then they wanted to give to, to Am Yisrael. And that's what Shevut Lumi is. It's truly 
volunteer work for Am Yisrael, and now the girls want to be part of Bitachon Yisrael, and it is a growing, growing uh, movement now in Israel that it's been such a change uh, that they want to go to the army, and they've developed programs for themselves to go to the army, and they, they don't go to fighting units but they go to they go to Modi, they go to intelligence, they go to Chel Chinuch, they go to uh, computers, they go to oh, that's a big one. They go to um, to the units that um, tell tell parents when a child has been injured or God forbid killed. They very big on that, the religious girls, and then they uh, accompany soldiers who have been wounded, but I think that's a major, major change in our community. Never would have dawned on a girl to do it before, and now very good, nice, from girls that learn. In a sense, they're setting up for themselves a yeshiva test there for girls. I will add one comment. I hope I don't, since I'm, I feel at home and amongst family, I'll say it. I hope it doesn't open a hornet's nest. Vicious. Uh, one of the big challenges you asked me for challenges. Um, I think it's a religious Zionist society at the moment is going a major change. I spoke. I spoke how forty years ago the framework of reference was the Haredi world, but it's it's more than that. Is, is religious Zion society, the Zion, was, secular Zionism in its best form was also a religion. Uh, it was a secular religion, but it was... Uh, what? Of course it was. It was a religion. There was a, there was a Demormi Merchavia. And uh, religious Zionism, paradoxically now, is taking on some of that, meaning the, the Israeli identity, I, I mean Israeli identity, and not the classical Jewish identity. The Israeli identity is uh, a crucial element in the self-image. Uh, I'll, give, uh, I'll, give, I'll give a few examples. My daughter, when she was four years old, now she went to Ghana alone Shavut. Alon Shavut is a very nice from community. It's considered a very Torah community, relatively speaking. Um, no, they taught them, of course, all the songs. They taught them before Manishtana, before Pesach, and they taught them Maus Tzur, and, uh, you know, Sivivon, Sov, 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 and uh, whatever, and, you know, and so on and so forth. But for two months, at the end, for the, before the Mesibat Siyum, you know, before the end of the year, uh, you know, the graduation, whatever we'll call it, um, they spent with them day in, day out, they spent with them practicing one of the one of the classic uh, songs of uh, you know of Zemer Ivri, and uh, for two months, day in day out, we, I, it was indoctrination almost. Um, or they came for came Yom Azikaron or Yom Hashoah, probably both. They had four-year-olds stand for the tzvira. Of course. Now, no one came and said they're four years old. It's not age-appropriate, you know. But, you know, then again, we talk about mitzvot or davening. Of course, let's say, you know, let's do it gradually. Let's... um, and I see the yeshiva. We have, there are all kinds of ceremonies, like Yom HaZikaron. Someone came to Yom HaShoah. He said to me, I said, at 10 o'clock, there was a siren. We all stood. And then we continued, resumed our learning. And uh, how can we do that? You know, we have in the yeshiva, Yom HaShoah, we have, uh, we, we, talk, we teach, we teach Mishnayis after Mincha. There was a long sikha by one of the Rosh Yeshiva, 
about the meaning of the day. No, but all this, if you don't follow civil religion, you're not part of Israeli society. Going to the army is part of this. I'll take an example. Morachayelet or Shudlumi teach do the exact same thing. The only difference is, is that one of them is doing what Israeli society does, and the other is, uh, is not getting that stamp of approval. And there, there are many, many other such. I, I gave a sicha a year ago. I spoke about modern orthodoxy in, in the yeshiva. And I emphasize that even though we believe in secular knowledge and the like, and, 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 et cetera, but obviously the religious identity is paramount that I, th- I thought it was such a self-evidence. I thought it was what I call educational maintenance. You have to repeat uh, basic messages, even though they're self-evident. You have to repeat them once every few months. Once every, I got so much pushback. Uh, we then had a meeting, uh, a town hall meeting with, with, with the Hevra for two hours, uh, and they were literally, they couldn't fathom the message. Uh, it was... Uh, like, no, you know, we, um, it was like, you have to, tr- they, they couldn't, because they were so deeply rooted to their Israeli identity. Yeah, they are. And, uh, and this, I think, is a big challenge. And if you ask me what our challenges are, this certainly is one of them to make sure, you know, Dr. Borg, I think, famously said, they asked him, datit, what's the most important element? He said, the hyphen. And uh, we have to make sure that we get it right in that regard as well. I think the I think the Israeli the Israeli youth, the religious youth, wants to be Israeli. It is the 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 because this because I think the second generation. What's happened is the Ashkenazi isn't very much of an Ashkenazi anymore, and the Sfadi isn't. There is there's a blending of the adult years ago. Fifty years ago, there were the Ashkenazim, and they were the Sfadim, and they were the Olim Chadashim. And now they marry because there's not very much difference between a, person, a, a young man whose parents came from Tri- Tri- Tripoli and a young woman whose mother came, or father and mother came from Ukraine. They are so very much alike. They are Israelis. And I think that Israeli identity has become the mainstream of the religious youth, too. They're Israelis who are religious. They're not religious Israelis. Some of them. Some of them. Yeah, that's Some a, of them. Some it's of them a are. very deep challenge. Uh, Some of them really are. This extends into Allah. How do you paskin by uh, the questions of... Uh, Jewish identity, uh, all, all the Gerus issues, I think can't be divorced from this. At the end of the day, the Gerus issues are halachic issues, but we all know that halacha also has a broader context and within it's, play, it's playing out. And I think we know that the, the Gerus issues are informed by this, uh, you know, it's inconceivable. <laughs> I'll just give one quick example. This is not about Gerus, but it, it illustrates this point. The, Rami Levy, I assume most people here are familiar with Rami Levy. Rami Levy opened up a supermarket in Samatagush. It's a wonderful thing. He should get the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, brings together Jews and Arabs on an equal footing. It's, Custom- the only, it's the only place you meet Arabs is in Rami Levy. As customers, as cashiers. He really puts everyone on equal footing. And there were a few, there were a few voices in, the, in our community which were opposed to this, exactly for that reason. And but I, I leave that aside at the moment. So, I, one, so I, I said to one of them, and 
So one of them said to me, no, there'll be it caused huge problems of intermarriage. The odds of anybody marrying an Arab who works at Rami Levy are zero. <laughs> I, mean, I really think it was a disguised racism, but that's a different story. And uh, but they're, they're, I said to her, well, if you're really concerned about intermarriage, aren't you more concerned about the Russians who are halakhically goyim, they're integrating the fabric of society, they're in the army, you go to college with them, they're really part of society. If intermarriage is really what you're concerned about, you should really, I think, you know, worry about the Russian olim who are non-Jewish. And some of them are willing to do gayrus, and we can argue the gayrus is valid. I know many who refuse to do gayrus. They say we're not Jewish, and we won't make a charade of our gayrus, and we remain non-Jewish. My wife works with some of them. And uh, I said, well, you should really be concerned about the Russian Olim much more than the Arabs and Rami Levy. He said to me, nah, but I'll have Israelim. Thank you. Thank you. Just uh, two final thank yous. Thank you again to Rabbi Kelman and to our motion for all of their support uh, and to B'nai Kiva for supporting us. Okay, finished. Well. Thank you all for being here. We're going to have a now. We'll bring out the Mokita. Have a wonderful, wonderful evening. Thank you very much.